Hi, this is Brian uh, jumping in with a quick postscript update uh, recorded after the uh, episode you're about to hear initially aired. In the intro today, I say that I hope I don't get, quote, tarred and feathered, unquote, while wading into the complicated waters of race. A listener pointed out to me that this was really far from the best term to use when introducing a sensitive subject. It's a violent image that is synonymous with public torture, humiliation, and death. And little did I know there's a history of tarring and feathering being used as a tool of racial intimidation. We're not deleting the phrase from the episode, but I wanted to include this note to say that we'll try to learn from this and think more carefully about language we use, particularly language containing violent imagery. Our English language is full of phrases with violent connotations, and speaking in a manner that is sensitive while not being overcautious is a challenge for all of us. All right, thanks for listening. On to the episode. From the recording studios of Reconstructing Judaism, welcome to Evolve, groundbreaking Jewish conversations. I really came into the rabbinate understanding that the Jewish community had to be a part of the solutions and that part of what we needed to do was some soul searching and reckoning in order for us to get to a place where we could be good allies with people of color, um, both in our community and in the larger country. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and we have a compelling show for you today. Our guest today is Rabbi Joshua Lesser of Congregation Beit Havarim in Atlanta, and we'll be discussing his essay, Preparing Our Communities for Conversations on Race. As a reminder, all of the essays discussed on this show are available to read for free on the Evolve website, evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. No paywall there whatsoever. So, do you need to read the essays? Do you not? The essays are absolutely not required reading to listen to this show, but we recommend checking them out because we think they're great and because you may get more out of it if you've, if you've read the piece uh, before or after. And if you're enjoying our podcast, or this is huge, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating or leave a review. This really, really helps. We're not just saying that. What else? All right. We need to, would love to hear from you. Questions, comments, criticisms, praise, maybe a little praise. Send it directly to my inbox at bschwartzman, S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z-M-A-N, at reconstructingjudaism.org. Writing us, it's one way to make sure that we develop a show that's more relevant to your life and your Jewish journey. Today's episode, I think, really demonstrates what the Evolve Project is all about. On the website, in our web conversations, and on this podcast, we are promoting the ongoing evolution of the Jewish community by launching collective communal conversations on the urgent issues of the day. And we're really trying to model civil conversations about difficult maybe even uh, taboo topics. And let me tell you, race is a hard conversation. I was more than a little nervous about uh, going on the air about this, just because the topic is, is so fraught. It's like the third rail for 
all of American history. And, you know, on the one level, I consider myself sensitive. I, I don't want to cause anyone pain or discomfort by, by asking an ill-informed question. And on the other hand, in social media culture, uh, you know, that we have today, I don't, I don't really want to risk, uh, you know, being tarred and feathered on, on, on social media for saying, uh, saying the wrong thing. And, and that, 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 that fear is exactly what um, shuts down conversations before they even, uh, before they even start. Um, I think it says something about this community reconstructing Judaism, this program and project, and our particular guest today, that we were able to have a real conversation. Yes, it's, there's an artificial element. I'm speaking into a microphone, and, and I was talking, uh, talking to someone 1,500 miles away, but it was a real conversation. And, um, and yes, it was, between, uh, it was between two white Jews on the topic of race and, and but there, there is still a significant conversation to be had in majority white synagogues about uh, confronting our assumptions and, and, yes, our prejudices and our sense that, that Jewish communities are, are inherently white and how to relate and respond and confront the national society legacy of, of racism and, and how to be allies to African-American communities today and, and, and other communities. And Rabbi Lesser, he's someone who's not only been thinking about these issues for decades, but he's been living them as an activist and a leader. And, you know, I felt, I felt pretty safe talking with him and, and asking questions that made me feel a little uncomfortable as, as an interviewer. And I, I think we got somewhere. So thanks for, um, you know, thanks for going on this journey a bit uh, with me. And, and, you know, I said this, I clearly label this as a conversation between two white Ashkenazi Jews and and um, just point out we certainly don't only want to be talking to white Ashkenazi Jews and Evolve and the Reconstructionist movement really tries to center the voices of Jews of color and and we certainly will feature those voices in in future episodes and for now you know they're, they're, it's on the Evolve um, on the Evolve website try diving into some of the essays including Radical Inclusion by Aurora Levin's Morales and Racism in the Jewish Community, which was co-written by Rabbi Sandra Lawson and rabbinical student Donna Cephas. Okay, without further ado, let's get to our guest. Rabbi Joshua Lesser is the rabbi of Congregation Beit Havarim in Atlanta, a Reconstructionist community founded by and for gays and lesbians, which now today serves a much uh, wider, diverse uh, Jewish community. He is a founder of the Rainbow Center a resource, information, and educational organization addressing the needs of the LGBTQ community. In his Evolve essay, Preparing Our Communities for Conversations on Race, Rabbi Joshua Lesser writes frankly about leadership, representation, and making assumptions about Jews of color in spaces dominated by white Jews. Rabbi Lesser, I'm so thrilled to, to have you on the program. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. We're we're talking about uh, the issue of race and Jewish community. It's such a uh, an engaging, fraught, overdue issue. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are are looking for for guidance on on how to approach this, how to have conversations. So we really we really appreciate you being here and uh, sharing your thinking with us. Sure. I, I mean, just to just ref, to reflect on that, I think that part of what it makes it's a necessary and challenging conversation is that on one hand, we need to be having this conversation as an internal conversation. 
We are a multiracial, multi-ethnic Jewish community. And um, we often do not take that into account. And we're at a time where that is past due. And then on the other hand, um, we're a community that interfaces with a lot of other communities. And so it's an external conversation. And that particularly Jews um, like myself, who I, you know, I often say that I, I identify as a Jew with white privilege. And um, you know, so for, for folks who have my skin color and look like me, but there is a way that we participate in the racist systems in our country, in our world. And that is another conversation and they intersect. And that's what I think makes this such an important but difficult conversation at times. Yeah. So I guess before I get to question one, I'll share a decade sure. ago in, in my in my uh, career as a, as a journalist covering the Jewish community, right around the time of President Obama's inauguration, I was asked to do kind of a big think piece on the state of black Jewish relations and, mm. you know, was asked to speak to Federation officials, you know, all, you know, rabbis, folks in the in the alphabet soup of Jewish communities and and leaders in in in, in this case in the Philadelphia black community. And and nobody, not my editor, not nobody said, hey, make sure you take Jews of color in, in, into account. It was, you know, just mm. not even not even a thought. And I think, you know, I think we've come a ways since then, but you know, as as you pointed out right at the get-go, this is this is something we just constantly have to be reminded of that 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 we are not a uh, you know uni ethnic uh, cultural community that there is great diversity in uh, North American Judaism yes and it's that reason that I often talk about in my community that when we stand against racism and racist systems like mass incarceration we're not just doing quote unquote, good deeds or mitzvot for another community, but that we're actually taking care of our own community. So I think I want to ask, as a, as a civil, rights, uh, civil rights leader widely known in, in the Atlanta community as, as the rabbi of a historically gay and lesbian synagogue, where does this, where does this begin for you? Where does this story begin? Was there, was there a moment where you kind of had an aha moment that 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 my community really needs to re- reckon and wrestle with with issues of race, or is it something that's always percolated in the background and has more come come to the surface in in recent years? So, so it's interesting. I um, I wasn't planning to become a rabbi. I was planning to out of school. Um, I'd taken my LSATs and I wanted to do public policy and law. And hopefully I thought at that point work in the inner city. And I think that I had a framework of what we might call um, the white, a white savior complex or a white hope that came from what was a very benevolent place. But what I've come to understand and what I came to understand pretty quickly um, by the experience I'm about to tell you uh, that it was um, not an appropriate place to come from. Um, it was misguided. And so I didn't want to go straight to law school. So I did a program called Teach for America. And I was part of the first Teach for America Corps in New Orleans. And I was placed in a school system where there was one other white teacher in the school. And a school that had uh, all of the students were African-American. And there was one Latino student um, 
And so for the first time ever, I had moved into the space where um, I was completely um, in relationship with the black community in a way that I hadn't been before. I always had black friends and always of, you know, kind of, I would say a particular, you know, we either were in the same school or we were in the same college. And um, this really began to open my eyes of some of the deep inequities about our country. You know, understanding that there are people in this country that don't have access to running water and that there are people um, that um, live in substandard housing and that the school that I was teaching in was doing such a poor job in many ways from a systemic perspective, from a funding perspective, that unless you were somehow a stellar student that could rise above, that we were creating what I didn't know was called, but I definitely saw that this was going to be a place that would be the pipeline from school to prison. And it just felt crushing and overwhelming. And at the same time, I also saw how um, both the school and the faith communities, which were almost exclusively in my school, churches, were the kind of supports. And I began to, to realize that um, if I wanted to kind of put my energy into building some of the bridges and into rectifying um, what was wrong, I needed to locate myself in my community, being the Jewish community. But I really came into the rabbinate understanding that the Jewish community had to be a part of the solutions and that part of what we needed to do was some soul searching and reckoning in order for us to get to a place where we could be good allies with people of color, um, both in our community and in the larger country. As I was discovering my Jewish identity, I was, I was immersed in, in the black community of, of Southeast Queens as a, as a, as a journalist, um, you know, kind of pretty ill-prepared to, to cover that community. And I think at that time, I, in a very misguided way, saw it as, 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 as needing to make a choice between working on those, on those social issues and, and getting more in touch with, with, with the Jewish community. And I think, I think you rightly point out one does not need to include or exclude the other by, by any, by any stretch. So, so I guess, uh, chalk it all up to, to misguided, uh, you know, 20, 20 something ideas. But, um, that's, that's really interesting that, that this, you know, thinking about race is, is, is something that was, was there even, even before your rabbinate, but at, at the very beginning. And, and I would also say that, um, as somebody who was coming out at this time in my life, and, and I was already out when I entered in rabbinical school, I, you know, I think I understood from a different perspective this idea of what does it mean to be marginalized and what does it mean to sometimes feel that the country is setting up systems that intentionally discriminate um, or make my life oppressed. And that, I, for whatever reason, I sometimes feel, and sometimes the challenge between Jews and other communities is we feel, oh, if we work on these other issues, we're somehow neglecting our own. I have had the sense that when I move forward an agenda around racism, I'm also working on anti-Semitism. I'm also working on homophobia by showing up in my full sense of who I am and that I have this touch point 
of um, of my own experience of of what does it mean to not feel a full citizen of this country at times that has helped me be open to think about what a good ally might be because I'm somebody who needs an ally as well. So in your in your article, you write that Beit Havarim has been has been looking at these issues for almost two decades. Because of that, we have made some progress. So can you can you talk about a little bit about that process and 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 what the progress has has looked like uh, recognizing this you know what's worked at at Beit Havarim might not be one size fits all. Absolutely, and I think that. Um you know, as a good reconstructionist, I think that I want to underscore that this is a process. So I would say, um, first and foremost, that the leadership at Beit Haverim, and I would say a number of our members, recognize that this is an ongoing exploration. I think that we recognize the kinds of experiences that Jews of color have when they walk into a Jewish system and that we've enabled enough voices, maybe not enough, it's probably never enough, but that we've begun to enable some voices to articulate their stories, their perspectives as Jews of color, to be able to create a sense of support, empathy, and then also platforms of leadership that um, allow them to help shape this community the way that they need it um, to be responsive uh, to them. Would you mind giving us an example? Up until recently, one of our kids, um, who basically through most of his childhood is a Jewish man of color. He's he's a uh, almost a junior in college. He basically um, went through our school and then became a madrich, and then a Hebrew school teacher. And to be able to have um, Jews of color in, in leadership is incredibly important. There is really this deep sense that representation is important. And so that's kind of, I would say some of the internal work. We always try to look at, are there Jews of color who are on our board? Um, if you were to see my office, you would walk into my office and I have on my walls real people that I'm in relationship with, both in this community and outside, who represent um, the different ways that Jews um, look and act and exist in this world so that we're not always portraying this Ashkenazi image or even worse, when I walk into most synagogues, it's the bearded man with the Ten Commandments. And that's some of the internal piece. The external piece is, is that it's been incredibly important that we as a synagogue have been represented on issues like pre-arrest aversion as a way to kind of look at answers to mass incarceration, that we're at tables where people of color are uh, advancing what are their needs, understanding that there are ways where um, how we look at systemic racism is incredibly important and how we can be a part of dismantling um, some of those systems and using our privilege. So for a long time, we were the only synagogue showing up to our city hall um, around these issues, around the decriminalization of marijuana, around ensuring that there's pre-arrest aversion. Um, and now we've actually helped create a coalition of more Jews, which feels great in terms of looking at closing our city jail and looking at ways to make that a center of 
um, restitution and repair in the community. Can you explain the term pre-arrest aversion for folks who might not be familiar? Absolutely. Um, So a number of folks in the community, and really it was a group of um, trans women of color who approached me saying that they needed faith leaders to support their goal of looking at cities like Seattle, like Santa Fe, and a handful of others that have instituted programs that for some low-level offenses around loitering and solicitation, that rather than putting people into the criminal system, that they divert or that they are given options other than arrest. So pre-arrest diversion allows for folks to get some of the treatment that they need. There are ways where people can go into drug and alcohol rehabilitation. There are ways where people can receive job training. And there's a whole host of other kinds of support that people need rather than throwing them into an incarceration system. You started out talking a little bit about having the, the quote, white savior mentality as, as, as a younger younger man. Um, is it a difficult balance to, to be an ally without, without coming from that place or exhibiting some of those savior tendencies? So, you know, I think what is an asset to being a rabbi and maybe even, um, you know, I would say how I feel I was trained as a reconstructionist rabbi and a member of the Institute of Jewish Spirituality cohorts is, is that this really is a spiritual practice and it continually takes um, a stance of humility. And, you know, I would say that a lot of my white savior complex came from wanting to be at the center of the story and wanting to be in a place where I was not only doing good, but that the good that I was doing was perceived as good by others. And there's lots of reasons why that happens to many of us, but really coming from a a place of humility, I'm much more interested in connection than I am in a sense of story. That's interesting. How does that play out in your rabbinate? I'm interested in Where does justice live in this moment? How can I support those who need um, that sense of support to be able to bring their their voice forward? Um, And often what that looks like is um, having the hard conversations with other white folks so that people of color don't necessarily need to have um, the painful Um, conversations that often lead to numbers of microaggressions. And I hear white, I hear quote unquote, good white people complaining about this all of the time. And I try to remind myself when I feel agitated or irritated when I'm with someone who um, has not fully understood how they could be a good ally, whether that's in the synagogue or not. I would say this often happens in the synagogue. You know, people have such good intentions. And when they understand that, you know, asking the Jewish person of color, um, when did you convert, is really a harmful question, not a welcoming one. But I just wanted to get to know the person, you know, the, you know, people kind of like, I, you know, I, I didn't mean anything by it. Instead of allowing the, the Jewish person um, of color to have to answer every single time to really give them that choice, but when appropriate to be the person that intervenes and has the hard conversation and enables the the person to take a break from the kind of 
racism that happens on a regular kind of inundating basis. That's a great segue because I really wanted to, you devote a lot of space in the article toward interacting with a, with a Jew of color when, when they walk in, in your door of, as, a, as a Jewish community. And I think in general, we don't spend enough talking, time talking about what we do when anybody walks in the door because it's, it's I think, you know, a, a lot of times where missed opportunity for, for connections being made. But um, your essay offers, you know, offer some don'ts, you know, do not comment on whether someone looks Jewish or not. Do not expect a guest to immediately become your resource for understanding their identity. I mean, any any positive guidelines on what what someone should do when you see someone in your religious community that doesn't doesn't look like you that that obviously comes from a different background? Yeah, I mean, not only does my reference points come from being in relationship with Jews of color. I also spent a great deal of time reading the blogs of Jews of color. And I think that if anybody, you know, if you're in a community where you don't have um, Jews of color, that it's really important to kind of hmm. get the window because you really end up seeing all of the ways that um, people are affected. My partner is, um, Brazilian and is Latino, and um, somebody in my own community um, asked if he was the janitor, you know, and on the other hand, you know, he and I are of this place, like, there's nothing wrong with being the janitor, you know, and so there's a lot of, of work to be done, but there was a reason why there was that kind of, kind of assumption, and I think that we often feel like we have this license to, um, to ask whatever we want. And so the do that I want to invite people to, to begin to think about um, are what are the kinds of conversations that fosters a connection that gives the sense of welcome? And it often can be a simple phrase or like, tell me about yourself. You know, there are some really simple, open-ended questions that don't bring the fullness of our assumptions that allow people to tell their story at the pace and at the desire, at the clip that they want without us kind of coming from it, from a place of curiosity or assumption. And then if we come from a place of connection and hospitality, then I think that it begins to reframe the kinds of questions that are truly hospitable or truly about connection and not about being invasive or assumptive. That's so interesting. You went there. I've I've already referenced a couple times in the show my my background as as a journalist, which is which is driven by curiosity. Um, you, you actually say be engaging rather than than curious. I'm, I'm I'm wondering why curiosity can can be fraught in in these interactions and and kind of what what the difference might might look like. Um. So, you know, I sometimes think as a journalist, you have a different kind of job than, let's say, a congregant does, right? Sure. Um, and, you know, and so, so, of course, we're curious. Of course, you know, we have these kinds of questions. But when we kind of privilege our own curiosity, we're putting our story first and we're not putting the other person. There is a way where 
know, sometimes the focus and the attention can feel hospitable, but really kind of when it is from an objectifying kind of place, I think that's the danger of curiosity is that some of what we're trying to do is to try to put someone neatly in a box so that we can feel the comfort of knowing quote unquote who they are. Whereas when you're engaging people, it, it can satisfy curiosity, but, but curiosity isn't at the center. What's at the center is we are a sacred community and we're hoping that you can feel for this service or maybe for the rest of your life that this can be a home for you. And so I believe that as a congregation, we should be of service rather than having someone fill in our need. And so often I think congregations um, and organizations think about things from our organizational need. Like we need members, we need that, you know, rather than encounter people in who they are and, and let them tell us. And I think that, you know, what I've discovered is that once I have a relatedness with someone, I then ask for, for permission. If I'm really curious about something, I then ask, hey, you know, I've been really curious. I wanted to know, um, you know did, did you grow up here? You know, you know wh wh whatever it is that that question, you know, why ever I, I have it, I do think it's important to kind of, when we can, when we can think of it, to ask for that permission um, so that someone has the freedom to say no. Yeah, and I, I recognize that peppering somebody with questions in real life is not, doesn't doesn't always work as well as it does in in an interview uh, situation. Um, that's that's for sure. I guess I wanted to ask about about Jews of color in in your community and and in, and in Jewish communities more general. Are are there ways that that the the congregation can be, you know, can be a source of 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 support both both spiritually and actually because i mean Jews of color are dealing with societal issues and problems directly that you and i may be facing indirectly i mean there there are different different stakes in in the game for Jews of color so um i think it's important for congregations to be explicit that they are having ongoing conversation about the ways that um, white privilege, white supremacy um, affect uh, the ways that we organize and how we present ourselves. Um, I think that, you know, I've learned recently that um, we can be really good relationally and that there are, you know, times where Jews of color can feel very welcome as an individual, but that often there are ways where things get tripped up. I, I once did a, a workshop um, not so long ago that basically said that white folks tend to want to build relationships and feel like things are good. And that in this moment in the world that many black folks are really interested in changing the system. And I've taken that very much to heart not that I don't value my relationships. And I do think that in a congregation, it's a little bit different. I think it needs to be a both and and not an either or. Um, I think that sometimes it is through relationship that we can get to the systems as white folks. But that if we feel like that once we've made a black friend or that we've welcomed a, a Jewish family of color or a Jewish individual of color, then, um, then we're done. 
that to me um, really sends a very unwelcoming message of not saying that we're in this work together and that I want a world that is free of, of racism and that there is greater equity. And I feel like the Torah talks so much about equity that how in this country can we not be talking about racial equity as part of that? It, it, it almost feels like um, intentional neglect not to. You know, there are times where um, I have been criticized publicly that I focus too much on racism and not enough on anti-Semitism. And so the Jews of color who hear that in my community um, often feel taken aback that, you know, somebody who is trying to work on behalf of something that should be a shared value. It's as if it's as if their priority and their life is not the same as some of the other Jews in, in the community, rather than understanding that anti-Semitism and um, racism share some deep roots in white supremacy. Where where could a congregation start? I mean, forming uh, forming a study group, um, uh, putting this to the top of, of a social action committee. I mean, what are if 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 a if a community is 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 fifteen or twenty years behind uh, where you are in this process, where Beit Havarim is, where where would you advise to to begin? Um, so if they're Jews of color in the community, not that they necessarily have to be the lead and the driver, but I think it would be really important for the leadership of the community to talk about what are the things that would make this more welcoming and what are the ways that we could be more representative of um, ensuring that um, you feel who you are and what you need in this world is represented by this community. And so, and I say that just to get, to to make sure that people aren't just marching forward with their uh, own agenda so that it's not misguided. I think it, it's important. But I also wanna say that there's a tension. I, I feel it all the time, which is, is that, you know, on one hand, I sometimes hear um, black folks saying, don't, um, don't always burden us with figuring out what the problems are, figure it out. And on the other hand, I sometimes hear, don't, um, don't do the work without consulting us because you'll be misguided. And the truth is, is that no one is a mon you know, no community is a monolith. There are lots of different ways. There's a way where, you know, what I've been doing the last couple of years is really understanding that my fragility um, has been tied to doing things perfectly, which is something that is across the board in my life. I like to do things perfectly. And there's a lot of fragility around when I don't do it, not just around race, but across the board. And so to having that insight about my about the way that I navigate the world has been really helpful in just saying, you know what, I'm not gonna do this perfectly. And that I will sometimes hear um, frustration and disappointment from the Jews of color, even when I feel like I've been working hard on behalf of, something. And then I'm going to do the best I can not to take it personally. So, you know, in some ways that doesn't quite answer your question, which I, which I will try to do in a moment. But, you know, what I feel is really important about, uh, about this aspect of our fragility. Fragility is often one of the things that prevents us from getting started. And so sometimes the study group that, that you suggested, um, the synagogue, Kolot Chayenu, in Brooklyn has really had an incredible model of having a study group explore issues 
of race in relationship to the Jewish community and white supremacy for a number of years before actually taking any kind of action. And that certainly is one way to approach it. Our community has um, chosen a different path. So I don't wanna say that there is a one size fits all. So I think a study group is good. We have a Black Lives Matter group at our synagogue, for instance. And sometimes this Black Lives Matter group is a group that helps organize people to get out to an action or a march or to get people um, to go to city hall or be part of a protest. And often they study and have discussions about what are things that we might do to make our community more thoughtful and more welcoming on these issues. So I think forming some kind of committee um, might be that. My guess is that most of our congregations, we already have people who are doing some racial justice work. And I think, uh, and that because of the way that Reconstructionist congregations often are, there are a lot of people who are doing social justice work who may be on the periphery and it would be an opportunity to kind of bring in what is the work that they're doing to see if there's an intersection that the congregation um, is doing. I think that moving beyond like just relationships. So uh, while there is nothing wrong with finding a, um, a black church to potentially partner with, this idea that we're just going to sit together and have a nice meal and pat ourselves on the backs is probably the wrong way to go. But to really to understand if a partnership like this can both be about relationships, but then can begin to look at what are the issues that having Jewish allies um, could involve the community for a greater sense of support. And you know what I've learned over all of these years is that because I've shown up at a number of really important things that when we, um, for instance, did a service to um, commemorate the um, victims of the Tree of Life shooting, we had so many people come to our building that we had circles and circles around our building. And it was a multi-racial, multi-faith group that showed up to support us. And, and that to me, like when you plant those seeds, that's what can happen is that people want to show up and, and be with you. I think that it's dangerous to just think that allyship is in one direction. I also like to talk about in our community the ways that we need um, people of color as allies ourselves for a number of the, um, the experiences that we have. And I also you know, want to recognize that it's not as if there's a community that is immune to anti-Semitism. And so that in doing this work, there's also kind of just as like we have to, you know, sometimes I feel the Jewish community doesn't recognize that the um, that just as we have to wrestle with our own racism and white supremacy in our community, that often um, people of color have to navigate their sense of Christian normativity and anti-Semitism that has been part of the culture that, that we've been in. And so sometimes as Jews, we're much more sensitive to the anti-Semitism without realizing we're actually having to do the same kind of work um, ourselves. You mentioned something that uh, Jewish communities in, in doing this work sometimes maybe forget that that there is there may be anti-Semitism in other communities, including communities of color. And, and, and you know, the past year or so we've we've seen um, in specifically in New York, uh, you know, an alarming increase in, in um, 
assaults on identifiably Jewish Jewish men in sort of orthodox garb, you know, mostly, you know, from from what I've read in news reports, um, you know, being attributed to to, to African American men. Is this is this? I mean, obviously, there's a there's a huge gulf between liberal and orthodox Jewish communities. But is this, you know, is this something that should be part of part of these conversations or alliance building? Something should be on our our radar. Uh, you know, perhaps because I don't live in the communities where this has happened. You know, I think that there are things that happen on the extreme. You know, well, I think that we can be part of the solution with each other. I don't know if I would want to hold the people of color that I'm in community with responsible for the kinds of violent acts of hatred that have occurred to um, to the you know the Orthodox Jewish men. To me, that is a really extreme form of anti-Semitism that I'm talking about, and and in fact, I think sometimes it is a little bit. Um, an example of what I think we do as Jews sometimes is that we kind of point to the most scary parts. None of the folks that I'm in relationship or coalition with have ever asked me to kind of represent or defend the Jews who are in this current political administration making some choices that are very much oppressive choices to people of color, to immigrants, to LGBT folks. And again, I wanna, says Jews, to have enough confidence in our place in the world and in our own sense of what does it mean to call to do justice, to take the first steps often towards the kind of understanding. And sometimes, you know, I've done this as a gay man in almost every space I've ever been in, is I work with people who I know are homophobic because there is a greater goal sometimes. And that what I have over 20 years of being a rabbi, I have seen people grow in their acceptance because I have shown up in all of these other kinds of arenas. You start out your essay with this great anecdote of, of when your community first moved into its building and, and a congregant a congregant comes with a with a gift of a of a painting to put on the wall and, and like and you're like, let me guess, is it is it a rabbi with a with a white beard? So I I'm wondering, is it, you know, are you saying it's 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 not okay at all now to have images of of Eastern European shtetl life with with men with white beards on the walls, or or there just has to be more of a conscious balance? Um, you know, in in all seriousness, I was I was I was wondering where you know what you were arguing with that with that point. Yeah. Um, I just think if you go into most Jewish spaces, the balance is completely out of whack. And it's not just what's on our walls. It's also what's in our books and on our websites. I um, had a congregant who has since moved uh, moved away, but I'm very close with her. She is a children's book illustrator and has worked on a number of Jewish books. And in sharing with her the dearth of um, books of Jews of color, she took what I said to heart. And so there's a book called um, Almost a Minion that she illustrated. And while it isn't a story about Jews of color, the um, protagonist and her family are Jews of color. And she did it just simply because we were having this kind of conversation. 
And so it means that there is the chance that someone's going to pick up a book that isn't a book about something specific, but to just see that Jews are represented, Jews of color are represented um, in everyday Jewish life. And that's more of, more of what I'm talking about. You know, I just feel like there is just this default. You know, I don't have it up in my wall anymore because the, the glass of the frame broke. But one of my favorite pictures um, that I used to have on my wall was of a man um, davening at the wall wearing mirrored sunglasses. And you could see the wall. The only thing that you could see was the wall reflected in his sunglasses. And I liked that he had sunglasses and to fill in. And, you know, it was just, I thought, a very cool picture. I'd gotten it in Israel. Um, and so, you know, even in my own office, there was a picture of that. But I also have um, a picture of an Asian child who um, had her bat mitzvah. I have um, several pictures of weddings I've done of multi um, ethnic, multiracial families. I um, have us at protests, I, you know, and so what I, what I chose to do rather than have this man, you know, a series of men, like if you went into my office, I'm in relationship with every single person on the wall and it represents real people in Jewish community um, with a wide diversity. It wasn't that difficult for me to create that kind of effect. And people have gone out of their way to say how much they have felt welcome because they see themselves represented in my office. And that's all that I'm asking that we consider. Rabbi Lesser, these are very difficult, hard questions we really, and, and issues. We really appreciate your, your, your time here and, and, and more importantly, your, your, your leadership on them. I, 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 really, um, I really appreciate it and I hope, um, I mean, I wish... Uh, I wish the issues were going away and we, di- we didn't have to discuss them again, but, but uh, you know, I look, I look forward to checking in with you on, on the future about them. Thank you. I appreciate um, the conversation. Thanks so much for listening to the interview with Rabbi Joshua Lesser. If you enjoyed our conversation, please be sure to read his essay, Preparing Our Communities for Conversations on Race. You might also want to check out Radical Inclusion, by Aurora Levin Morales and Thoughts on Race and Anti-Semitism by Rabbi Mordecai Liebling. What did you think about today's episode? We want to hear from you. Evolve is about curating meaningful conversations, and that includes you. So send us your questions, comments, feedback, whatever you got. You can reach me directly at bschwartzman at reconstructingjudaism.org. My name is spelled the same as the Argentinian tennis star, Diego Schwartzman, the actor Jason Schwartzman, but not the same as the billionaire Steven Schwartzman, who drops the T before the Z. Be sure to check back next month for an all-new episode with Rabbi Toba Spitzer to discuss her essay, Slavery and Its Atonements. Evolve Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations is executive produced by Rabbi Jacob Staub, and edited by Sam Walks. Our theme song, Ilufinu, was composed by Rabbi Miriam Margols. This show is a production of Reconstructing Judaism. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and I'll see you next time.